Let's turn now to our sermon text, which is Exodus 34. Exodus 34, and beginning in verse 10. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. You shall make no molten gods. For yourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we receive, we feel some of the heart of the true and living God, of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our Bridegroom, our spouse towards his bride. And Lord, in this mixture of compassion and warning, we see the love that you have for us however unworthy that we might be of your attention and affection, we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to receive this truth. Part of the name of God is jealousy, that you are jealous for us. And help us to do with this knowledge what is right in your sight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're here in this middle portion of Exodus 34. It's been remarkable times, really, kind of a growing and expanding wonder as Moses is admitted into the inner council of God, and he's met with God, he has seen the living God as much as possible for any man to see and yet live, and even more importantly than that, God has revealed his name to Moses, and you know that 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 is a multifaceted concept. The, the Lord himself, that was a revelation to Moses at the beginning of this whole thing, back in the early chapters of Exodus, as he appeared in the burning bush. He revealed his name, the Lord, those four letters in Hebrew. But there's more to God's name than simply those four letters. And, in fact, that is the name that was proclaimed in the early part of this chapter, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Let me again mention the complexity or the multiplicity of this concept of identification that God gives us. 
And if you forgive me for yet another military analogy, I'm reminded when I, I, I visit the people that I now visit, um, they have things as well as their name, right? They have a, a name and they have their service. And then, particularly in the Army, they have all their, their badges. So even though they're not wearing a dress uniform with their medals and ribbons, they're wearing all their qualification badges. And so some of them, that list goes on and on. They have four or five of them and uh, of all the amazing sort of schools that they've gone to and the qualifications they hold. Why is that important? Well, that's part of their identity. You meet someone, you need to know who they are, and so it has, this is part of their identity. They've, they've, they've been to jump school, they've been to dive school, they've, they've been to ranger school, all the rest of those things are part of their identity. Well, these things are the part of God's, and now it's not all of it, right? That's not their entire history. That's kind of the, the highlights, the summary. And here also, in the things that God mentions are the highlights, the summary of, of his identity. And as the Lord gives that summary, that identity, that name of God, the thing that he leads with, of course, is his mercy. First thing he mentions, mercy, merciful and gracious. And we majored on that last time. And I think that we have to, the context of our consideration this time is just stepping off from that. The first thing he mentions is mercy and grace. All right? But yet even in this giving of his name, his justice is also made clear, as we spoke about, that he doesn't clear the guilty. His justice and righteousness are there. And that's important also as we consider this topic of his jealousy. Now, the Lord gives Moses some, some instructions as they're about to go forth. It's not that these things have never been mentioned before, but as with anything, uh, as there's, there's been a mistake already, there's been a major problem. Remember, remind, you know, think about what is the major problem that has gone wrong. Well, it's something that's so serious it threatened the existence of the nation. He was going to actually uh, wipe them out. Why? Because they made a molded God. They turned to idolatry. They've not even come into the promised land. They barely even come into to contact with these pagan nations and their various idolatries, and they've already invented something. They've already taken on their ways, nonetheless. And it's threatened their existence. And so he has to give some warnings again to Moses, not that Moses didn't know, but some summary instructions that remind him of this. And so in verse 10, Behold, I make a covenant, and that's important too, before all your people, I will do marvels such as not been done on the earth nor in any nation, meaning that these things are going to only make God's people all the more responsible for their knowledge. Right? He does not cast his pearls before swine. It's just like when Jesus came in, uh, to his own people and all the works that were done made the people more culpable, made them more responsible for the knowledge that they had in order to do what was called for in that situation, to make them faithful. Um, observe what I com- for it is an awesome thing that I'll do with you. Observe what I command you this day. I'm driving out from before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going. I'm going to make a covenant with you. Don't be making a covenant with them. Lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. And then the rationale for all that is given here in verse 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Okay? And I just have to focus on that. Whose name is Jealous. He is a jealous God. 
Now, beloved, I have to, we have to admit among ourselves that we're sometimes a little embarrassed about that. Right? That's not the first thing that we would tend to say about God. And even I imagine as those words are spoken, some of you are, are shrinking back a little bit from that. We might be embarrassed about it, but the Lord obviously isn't. He proudly proclaims it. It's one of his badges there. It's up front that everyone can see. That it's important. It's significant. And inasmuch as there is a disparity between the way you feel about it and the way God feels about it, that is a problem. All right? That is an error in your heart and in your mind. And it needs to be driven from us. And rather we should embrace the truth that God so gladly proclaims that he is in fact Jealous. We rejoice in his holiness. We rejoice in his mercy. We, re- we rejoice in his, his grace. And we ought to rejoice in his jealousy. Now, practically, I'm going to say this. It's not going to be the longest sermon, but I'm, we're going to practically get to something that is of extreme importance. And, of course, that has to do with our own heart of idolatry and our worldliness. And there's one cure for all that, beloved, and that is the knowledge that our God is a jealous God. That's the medicine that we need. Well, the sermon title is Our Jealous God. Our Jealous God. Three points. Covenant is marriage. Two, idolatry is adultery. Idolatry is adultery. And thirdly, don't intermarry with idolaters. So first, covenant is marriage. He says, behold, I make a covenant. That's the context of this whole statement. It has to do with this covenant relationship. And friends, that covenant relationship is an exclusive relationship. That is its nature. And we're going to see over and over again the parallels between God's relationship to us in that covenant of grace that he had with the people of God and still has with us today and ever shall have. And of the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Both of those things are covenants. Both of those things are exclusive. And are not to be broken uh, lightly in the slightest. And we're going to say also are the only right context for jealousy. Now a husband can and should be jealous if his wife is giving her affections to another. But only if she is in fact his wife, right? You, you can't rightly be jealous with regard to someone who's not in a covenant official relationship with you. But once there is that exclusive covenant relationship, it is something rightly to be guarded. We understand that there are people who are jealous. And sometimes we use that in a very loose form, sometimes just in terms of envy or otherwise being unpleasant and otherwise being selfish and self-centered. We're not talking about that. In fact, actually, in, in the Bible, the jealousy typically only runs one way. All right, the examples that we have is the husband being jealous with regard to his wife who is giving her affections to another. All right, now, if it is done apart from any kind of other sinful um, uh, intent or ideas, that is a very, very legitimate um, emotion, and God does nothing whatsoever to abrade uh, legitimate jealousy in that way. Well, anyways, as I say, there's an exclusive covenant relationship to be guarded, and jealousy is the mechanism by which that is, right? So there's lots of good and right affections that we have that do something that is right, that God wants us to do. Satan gets us to misuse all of these things, 
All right? Let's take the, the obvious example here, love. Love is what binds a husband and wife together. Love is what binds a, a, a son or a daughter to a mother or father, a brother and sister. And those are good relationships, and it is right to be bonded together in love. But in something as important as a covenant relationship, there's even something beyond that which guards that relationship, which sets a guard, and that is jealousy. And jealousy is a reminder to both parties of that, right? That the wife does not take that relationship trivially because she understands that her husband would rightly be jealous, and that the husband and those feelings are what then prompts him to do what he ought to do anyways, to make sure that that relationship is properly guarded from anyone who might interfere. So, as we see, God says, I'm going to make a covenant. I have made a covenant. Let me say, we know back in Genesis 15 that the covenant is already long in place. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenanites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gerashites, and the Jebusites. Now, let me just say right there, he's already giving those nations and all that they possess into the hands of his people. That was way back with Abraham. Abram, before he even had the name Abraham. What then could these nations possibly offer to the Israelites anyways? God has already given everything they have into their hands, right? It's, it's pointless, it's vain. And friends, I'm going to say the same when it comes to worldliness, right? God has already given us every good and perfect gift. There, there's nothing that the world has, there's nothing that is in Satan's hand that is not in God's to give us already. In fact, it's one of the tricks of the devil to act like he has something that God already intends to give us or otherwise a good gift of God. And he kind of distorts it and cloaks it and says, this is what I'm going to give you. But friends, that's never the case. If it's good, God has already given it or will soon enough give it to his people. And likewise, anything that the people could possibly give, God has already promised to put into the hands of his people. Well, all that to say, he's already had it, he's certainly already made a covenant with them, but in God's goodness, he is renewing that covenant with his people. He is going to make a covenant so that when that promise is enacted and he brings them into the promised land, then that covenant is in a higher level, both fulfilled on the one hand, but also enacted and uh, reaffirmed. All right. So covenant, I want to just make that brief point that covenant is marriage. That's the idea. It's an exclusive covenant relationship. And that the, the, the marriage between God and his people is something that is made, countless references are made to it throughout scripture. He speaks of it as a thing so beyond, uh, you, you know, that so clear it's beyond even explanation that there is such a parallel between those two things. So then secondly, the breaking of that exclusive relationship, what is that? Well, it's idolatry on the one hand and it's adultery on the other. So I make the point secondly that idolatry is adultery. Now I say that because we need to understand it. And and most of us, I hope, would understand how terrible adultery is. But actually, idolatry is even worse than that. Right? Because our relationship, our, our responsibility to God is even greater than any human relationship we have. I was making the point to the seminary students in teaching ethics 
that there, there's, we have two tables of the law. There's a first table having to do with God and a second table having to do with man. This one has to do with loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and strength. Those first four commandments. And then the second half has to do with loving our neighbor as ourselves. And if there's ever any dispute or wonder which one takes priority over the other, you can be certain it is the first table of the law that is more important. And so idolatry is a more serious sin in the final analysis than adultery, even though it is an extremely heinous and serious sin. But now, the whole idea that I've just mentioned to you of the exclusive nature of God's relationship with his people, that was utterly uh, alien. John L. Mackay says that in in his his commentary on this, this part. It was alien to the polytheistic thinking of the ancient world. That's not the default setting of the way they thought. Rather, they would have all kinds of gods. And probably every family had one god that they were particularly aligned to, but they saw nothing, no problem if they were passing throughout some other land to offer incense to some other god, or if they were in some special circumstance. Maybe they weren't really Baal worshippers. Maybe they worshipped Asherah or something else. But if they didn't have rain, or if their, their cattle weren't fertile or something like that, then they would probably uh, go ahead and do the Baal worship, because that's the idea. Is, and, and in fact, their neighbors that are Baal worshippers would say, oh, wow, you know, your fields aren't looking so great, guys. Um, you know, we're having a Baal festival next week. Maybe you should come and, and worship Baal, and he'll help you out. Well, people would be, would be worshipping multiple different deities back then. And the idea that one would be, have, want an exclusive relationship was utterly alien to all those people. And that's part of the problem. Because God knows that it's not merely that, that they're offering individual alternatives to him. It's that the whole concept of mixing and matching is so utterly repugnant to him. He does not want his people to get into that mode at all. And let me say, that is exactly what would soon enough happen. It is not, with some few exceptions in the history of Israel, was not ever a matter of them abandoning officially and entirely the worship of the Lord and officially adopting one other religion. It was that they wanted to add other religions to the worship of the Lord. They didn't see the problem. They didn't see the disparity. They didn't understand that you couldn't have both of those things at the same time because that was the attitude of the entire ancient world. And God says, no. My relationship with you is different. I make a covenant with you. I have made a covenant with you. I am going to make a covenant with you. And my relationship is utterly exclusive. And any way in which you go to other gods, even in your hearts, this is adultery. So that's the instruction. And that's the understanding of the instruction when he says, But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, think about it again in that context. None of it, that would not be true of any of those other gods. Now, none of those other gods would be holy either. Okay, Holiness is not something you associate with the ancient Near Eastern deities anymore with the Greco-Roman deities. They were not holy. They were unholy representations of sinful men and women and beasts, by the way. But God is holy, but he's also this, he's jealous. He's not like those other gods who don't mind if you have a little, uh, a little fling with some other deity on the side. No, he's different than that. He is a jealous God. That is part of his identity. None of those other gods have that on their identification. They don't even exist. 
But the one true and living God, that is one of his attributes that we need to know about. We need to know who we're dealing with here, right? When we meet him, ah, oh, he's, he's not like Baal. Okay, Baal doesn't mind if we go worship someone else on occasion, but this God does. He's jealous. That's part of his name. That's, of course, uh, it's not so long ago that we were in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. I'm sure you remember that. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, nor you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. It goes through this kind of list. It's very categorical. Don't do this. Don't do the other. Because our hearts are always looking for some way out of these things and saying, well, maybe I can't do this, but I can do No, none of this. None of it. None For I, why, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now that love me and keep my commandments part, that's all about those in covenant with him. These are his, his bride, his wife, those in covenant. But he does take it seriously, those who would presume to break that sacred bond and to forsake that covenant and to go after other gods. It's a serious matter. Now, that brings us to the larger Catechism 110. It asks, what are the reasons annexed to the second commandment the more to enforce it? The reasons annexed to the second commandment the more to enforce it contained in these words, for I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of those who hate me and showing mercy upon unto thousands of those that love me and keeping my, and keep my commandments, are this. Besides God's sovereignty over us, he's king, he just tells us what to do. And propriety in us, now that's important, his propriety in us, we are his people. He's a covenant God. He's the Lord. We're, we're the ones that he has particularly chosen out of all the earth to be his. So he's the king generally of everyone. He gets to tell everyone what to do. And he has special propriety in us. But beyond those things are his fervent zeal for his own worship and his revengeful indignation against all false worship as being a spiritual whoredom. Whoredom. Adultery, right? He has a zeal for his own worship, and he has a revengeful indignation against all false worship as being spiritual whoredom, right? In as much, you remember that example, don't we, of the prophet who, in the sovereignty and instruction of God, did marry a harlot. And you're reminded of how she went back to her old ways and she went back to her adultery, and, and the Lord says, that's just like you, Israel. Back to your old ways. Here I marry you and give you all the things that you need. I give you a house. I give you, I give you my love exclusively. I take care of you. And you go off and, with your spiritual whoredoms, commit adultery with these wicked idols, imaginations, and demons. Well, that's the idea that should be resonating in the heart of, of, of God's people is that God cares. He's a jealous God. He does not take this as a light matter. All right, again, the core of, the, of jealousy is a relationship, the closest of relationship of husband and wife, and that marriage itself is merely a type of the relationship between Christ and the church. 
Okay, marriage is not ultimate. It's very important. It's not ultimate. Not everyone will be married in this life. And that's okay. What it's pointing us to is Christ and the church. That's the ultimate relationship. And so all that we know about marriage and all that wonderful exclusivity and that context of of love that subsists in that exclusive relationship and the unity that subsists in that relationship, that points us to the real covenant relationship we have with Jesus Christ. But to turn away from that and to give our affection, to give our worship, to give our attention to something else as if that were God or God-like is adultery. And so it is in Deuteronomy 4. Take heed to yourself, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God. Forget which he made with you, and make for yourself a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Pointing both to the holiness of God as well as his jealousy. Now just to wrap this up, I'll mention a couple of other texts. Um, Ezekiel 8 Do you remember, I don't know, Ezekiel may not be the most well-known of um, biblical text, but in Ezekiel 8, the Lord takes Ezekiel and shows him what's going on, because this is a very bad time in in the nation of Israel. And he stretched out in the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my hair, and the Spirit lifted me between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. Because in their mixing by that point, they had actually brought idolatrous images into the temple of the living God. Now, it's bad enough for it to happen out in the hinterland somewhere, privately, that's bad enough. But to bring it into the capital, and, and more than that, to bring it actually into the temple of God, which was, was built precisely for the exclusive worship of the one true and living God, is an image that provokes to jealousy. Okay? And you have to understand the nature of that. It's a provocation. Idolatry is a provocation to our God. Now the final one I'm going to mention on this, on this second point is Paul's reasoning in 1 Corinthians when he's talking about meat offered to idols and generally our relationship to the idolatrous rites and all the rest of it. He says, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Okay. Let's stop right there. Even in the New Testament, the warning is you could provoke the Lord to jealousy. And the apostles urging us not to do that, that we would not have anything to do with idolatry. Well, it's in some sense very straightforward. A covenant is marriage, and idolatry is adultery. And then there's this next section, don't intermarry. Right? These two aspects, the physical and the spiritual, these different kinds of marriage and these breaking of these things, come together in the issue of marrying pagan wives. As we've been considering one and the other, but they come together very freely in this, in this way. 
In verse 15, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods. And one of you invites you and you eat of his sacrifice and you see how the Lord, Lord goes down this line. Um, we're sometimes told when we make our arguments theologically against error and slippage in, because the, unfortunately we know that the church is perpetually in a struggle against the spirit of the age and progressive theologies. And whenever conservative men point out, well, if this happens, the next thing will happen will be this, it's always retorted, well, this is a slippery slope argument and has no validity. Friends, the Lord God himself uses such slippery slope arguments because he's the one who created the ground and our feet and he knows about slippery ground. Okay? And he knows good and well that once you get going on that, you might just slide all the way down. Lest one of you invites you is the first problem. He doesn't want them to be living so that they could invite. He doesn't want there to be in existence any kind of idolatrous cult left of any kind, any, any remnant of it that you could be invited to. Your instruction is to wipe it out, to raise it to the ground so that nothing is left at all. Because he knows about this slippery ground thing. By the way, I'll just say in brief, the, one, the thing that was said by the progressives in the PCA that they would not do is precisely the thing that they're now saying that they're going to do. Not so long ago, they said it was the furthest thing from their mind as they sought to, to put women on committees. They sought to put, give women a seat at the table in various ways to give them an alternative credentialing that wasn't at all anything to do with ordination. Now there's an official thing to bring them to make women deacons in the PCA. It's the slippery slope, the very thing that they rejected in strident terms. As men said, the next thing you know, this is what's going to happen. They said it would never happen. Of course it did happen. Slippery slope. Well, anyways, lest they come, lest they invite you to eat of his sacrifice and you take of his daughters. Well, what what happens then? You might meet the family. And and, and it just might be that the next thing that happens is intermarriage. You take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. And see, in this very same sentence, this marriage becomes harlotry. This, this, this physical marriage becomes idolatry as they marry these pagan people. Well, friends, God is jealous for his people. And the thing that he desires is a holy seed, right? He desires a holy people. He loves us, and he is protective over us and doesn't want us to wander away from him, and he knows good and well what will happen. And so he makes these prohibitions not for our, our hurt, right? He's not trying to ruin our fun when he says, don't marry unbelievers. He knows what is right and good for us, and he loves us and doesn't want us to drift away. And beyond that, he wants it to last from one generation to the next. Right? That's one of the, the, the bizarre things. Even as the church has gone after the world in every kind of way, they've lost their children. And the, there are generations that are almost entirely lost to the British church because of their policies and these things. Friends, we don't engage in, in missionary dating Uh, We believe what the Lord has said, and we marry only in the Lord. Well, I'm already in application, so I will 
carry on from there. Um, I, I hope you understand then why jealousy is right for our God to have. In fact, why it is necessary that when we consider our God, that we consider that part of his identity, that he is indeed a jealous God that's part of his name, that he has an exclusivity that the pagan and false gods do not. And he watches over us with a loving, yes, jealous, but let me say that that is born, of course, of his devotion and of his commitment to this relationship. Um, those who, who have no commitment and don't care are incapable of jealousy. But it's only, a, in this case, a loving and holy and exclusive husband that has uh, such emotion for his people. So that's my first point, actually, is just to say that the covenant is forever. Right? Marriage is forever. God hates divorce. Why does he hate divorce? Because that's not the kind of God that he is. When he makes commitments, he keeps them. When he says to someone, I'm going to be your God forever and all of your children forever, every generation for the end of time, he actually means it. Right? That is his, his stated intention that is part of his character. And we can be thankful that the world may fall into pieces, but God will never forsake his covenant, nor his covenant people. Jeremiah 3.12, go and proclaim these words toward the north. Say, return, backsliding Israel, says the Lord, even when they're backslidden. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice. And you think that surely this is the end for such a people that has played the harlot. But no. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. You see, the rationale for the return of backsliding Israel is that God considers himself to be married to this bride. And though she has played the harlot and departed off, in her idolatry, yet he welcomes her back. We can be very, very thankful for that. Secondly, and as I've already said very briefly, young people marry only in the Lord. Okay, It's crucially, crucially important. Now, there are other things that can be said. Let me say, there are some marriages that aren't really great, even between Christians. And it's really important that you get uh, a lot of advice and, a lot, and the involvement of families and, and all the rest of those things. There's a lot of things that make for a successful marriage. But the thing that is utterly deadly across the board is to marry outside of the Christian faith. And so I, I pray that you never even consider such a thing and that you not begin on some kind of relationship with someone because one thing leads to another, Right? That, that father didn't think that he was going to be giving his son in marriage to the pagan girl. He just accepted an invitation to go to some feast. Now, we need to befriend um, the people of this world. Of course, we should be salt and light to them. But any hint of romantic involvement is, of course, something we should not do. And we should be very mindful and thinking the next step ahead rather than being overtaken by events. We marry only in the Lord. Thirdly, we need to forsake our idolatries. Because this is for us too. Right? It's not just the Asherah pole. It's not just the Baal statue. And all the rest of those things. Dagon and all of his friends. 
We don't do that so much anymore in this world, but we do worship the work of our hands, and we have to be very careful about that. In whatever good vocation that God has given you, in whatever good situation that you do, whatever it is that you do with your time, you can either glorify God in it or you can become an idolater in it. All right? Both of those things are possible. Every day they are possible. And every day we have to make the decision to dedicate the work of our hands to God, to give thanks to God for all the good things that we have and are able to do in his power. And every day we, we turn away from the possibility of idolatry. And in particular, I would just mention again worldliness. We, we read that verse in, in James. It's very stark. And we say to ourselves, wait a minute, I'm not an adulterer. I'm not an adulteress. What is the Lord speaking of? Well, friends, it's talking about the, the, the world capturing our heart. Okay? God loves us. God has wonderful, good, right things for us. And he gives us those good and right things. And when he sees us hankering for what the pagans have, what they have in their hands to give us, when, when we hanker for all the things that they do and say and have and all the rest of it, their manner of life, lifestyles we'd call it, the Lord's not pleased by that. The Lord says, am I not good enough for you? Do I not give you good things? Why are you hankering after the world? We need to forsake that worldliness. And not in some superficial way. We don't adopt some exaggerated uh, kind of situation which we go out of our way in superficial ways to, 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 to have the appearance of being apart from the world. But I mean in deep, real ways. Like ways in which I mentioned this morning of focusing our, our, our lives on fostering a, a closer relationship with the one true and living God. That's what he wants. He wants our hearts. So we forsake our idolatries. And fourthly, I have to say, we want to rejoice because God is jealous. It is a good thing he has that identity, that qualification, because it's what guards us from falling precisely into that. Okay, All around the covenant circle, all, all around the boundaries that we live in, there is a pit. All right? And I believe sometimes that it requires, there's a whole spectrum of things that keep us on the straight and narrow. Okay? And uh, they're all legitimate. We, we, don't, we don't say only this is legitimate and nothing else, right? We should be doing things out of love for God. We should be doing things out of thankfulness for him. We should be doing things out of, out of uh, just an obedience to the word of God or a desire for rewards in heaven. All those things are true, but sometimes we just have to know that there are going to be consequences for us. When we're having a bad day, we need to remember, ah, God is jealous, He's not just going to let us slip away into the world. God is jealous. He's not just going to look the other way when I commit this adultery, uh, idolatry, which is adultery. He's a jealous God, and therefore he will do whatever it takes to recover me to himself. And that's a good thing. Because, friends, that means that he protects us and keeps us and values us. It's all born of his love for us. It's like in Zephaniah 3.16. Do not fear Zion. Let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Where his prized possession, where the lost sheep that he sent Jesus to go find, he rejoices over our repentance, and yes, he guards over us. 
And that's the beauty of the reality that our God is jealous. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, Lord, we cannot claim to know all that there is to know about you. You've not even revealed all that there is to know about you. But Heavenly Father, how we pray that we would at least latch on to the things that you make clear to us. And the reality that you are jealous for your covenant people, that you are a jealous God, it is not something hidden in a corner far away, but you proclaim it as part of your name. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that we rejoice in these things, be comforted by them, that it would be a practical good to us to keep us away from idolatry and adultery of any kind and keep us on the straight and narrow in the place where we're blessed, in the place where we're loved, in which all things are given to us, not by Satan, not by your enemies, but by the one who loves us more than anyone else. Help us, Lord, therefore, to rejoice in your jealousy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.